We're always building on top of each other across the industry on what we're doing. And so we're not doing this discovery alone. We're build, we've built it up over time. And I think that's why, for example, mobile free-to-play is just such a mature market now. Hi friends, welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today we're joined by Matt Dayan, Lead Product Manager at EA and also a contributor at Navic. I'm sure you've read his essays. Anil Dasgupta, co-founder and CPO of First Light Games. And today he's well rested. He didn't have a, an overnight flight and then came to do a podcast. Mm -hmm. And we have a new guest on, Anthony Pecarella, co-founder of Level Up Labs. You may know his co-founder, Lars Doucet. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks. Good to be here. Do you have a prepared 30-second intro that I didn't warn you about? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, yeah, so my background, um, I got started in the gaming industry in about 2008. Uh, I worked at Congregate, um, which was a browser-based games platform. Uh, I was there for actually about a decade. Um, I held a bunch of different roles from QA to product management to developer relations. Um, did a short stint at Imanji Studios, which is the Temple Run developer. Uh, and then now I'm uh, consulting with Novik. Uh, my um, kind of experience or expertise is in the uh, subgenre of idle games or clicker games. Uh, it's um, I was the lead producer on Adventure Capitalists, which is one of the early ones, and um, have just worked with a bunch of the developers in the space. Uh, and then uh, Level Up Labs originally was just uh, an indie game uh, studio and uh, game Defender's Quest was uh, um, the one that we kind of got famous for. Though we actually made an uh, educational game called Cellcraft. Uh, it's about cellular biology. It was our our first ever game that we did. That's uh, that's my background, I guess. <laughs> you know, small background, no biggie, no biggie. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, Congregate are part of the MTG family now. So I've met some fellow Congregate people as I'm at Hutch and yeah, great, great company. So if you've been there a decade, I'm sure you played a huge role in building it up to what it is today. Uh, and just to get to know you a little bit better, what's your favorite object that you have in your room right now? Ooh, good question. Um, I think it would probably be, um, it's this, um, it's a piece of pyrite that um, just naturally formed in these cubic shapes. Like you can find pyrite that does this. Um, oh, and wow. uh, I think it's just absolutely fascinating to like, that's not cut. That's just how it formed. Um, and so that's just amazing. That, yeah. I, I absolutely love it. So um, yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> I didn't know that nature, nature produced such sharp geometric objects. Yeah. Every once in a while, there are certain um, constructions. You see it in uh, carbon in some cases where it'll form like the geodesic dome kind of look or um, like, I mean, diamonds will sometimes get that sort of flat face. And um, But yeah, just something about the pyrite. Uh, I'll have to look up the chemistry behind it um, sometime and really understand <laughs> it. But uh, yeah. That's, that's a great off the cuff answer. Um, yeah. Just like <laughs> lying there in your room. I feel like I would have just grabbed like I don't know, like my cell phone or a coffee mug or something really lame. <laughs> I'd love it if you picked up your dog. Oh, sorry. They're not in the oh. room right now. No. And, sorry. And my cat would not like me picking him up. So. Uh, the Metacast awesome. is now a podcast about geology, not about game industry analysis. <laughs> let's, let's, let's pivot our content. <laughs> 
Cheers for going along with it, Anthony. <laughs> um, yeah, so just before we jump into the topics, I want to give a shout out to King's PvP action game on wheels called Rebel, Rebel Riders. Have you seen the playtesting, the video, the trailer? Okay, you have to go and check it out. Imagine stuffed toys, uh, cute, just cute toys on wheels shooting each other out. You have to go and check it out. Please, please let it play the past play test. I, I really want to play it. So okay, uh, topics. Oh, sorry. What was the name of the game? Kings. Uh, Rebel Rebel oh. Riders. Yeah, it's like a Toy Stories. <laughs> Toy Story with guns. <laughs> yeah, basically, and, and battles battles on wheels. <laughs> it's cool. It looks really fun. Um, yeah. So today, in terms of our topics, we're going to be talking about how goals can be counterproductive. And, you know, games are very goal-based, so this will be an interesting one to dive into. We're also going to talk about fully on-chain games, uh, traditional console developers and their relationship with mobile. And then if we have time, so I want to allow enough time for these big topics, we might go into my experience so far with the Quarry, a narrative couch co-op game that is meant to be very scary. All right, Matt, you got the right. philosophical topic today. Yeah, this was um, this is not necessarily a piece of news, but it really um, got me thinking, and so I thought it would be interesting to apply it to our craft and see what we could kind of come up with. So, uh, a little bit of context. I'll try and summarize this quickly. Um, I recently listened to a podcast. Uh, it was uh, "Invest Like the Best" by Patrick Carlson. Sorry, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Excuse me. Um, and it's a fantastic podcast. If you haven't listened to it, I first got turned on to it by someone. Who described it on Twitter as like a wonky podcast that just gets wonkier and wonkier. And I think that's a really apt description. But anyways, uh, Patrick had a guest on named Kenneth Stanley, who is a professor of computer science. And he wrote this book called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And the premise of the book uh, is that really large goals and objectives can actually be harmful and counterproductive to achieving the goals that you're setting out to do. Um, the podcast was titled Greatness Without Goals. Um, so this uh, this guy, Ken Stanley, um, has done a bunch of research. His background is in AI and machine learning and really, <clears throat> excuse me, arrived at this conclusion through um, a series of experiments with um, a program where basically um, users were presented with these sort of amorphous blobs and you get to choose um, sort of an, an offspring, quote unquote, from these blobs that you find interesting. There's no goal set out, um, but it's all kind of user driven. You just pick whatever looks interesting. And then that choice that you made um, feeds into the next set of choices. Uh, and so it's sort of like a breeding system. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's kind of a series of individual choices uh, but they are built on the collective series of choices made by everyone that used the program before you. Um, so this this is the way that he conducted his research. But I'm I'm going a little bit off track here. Um, he um, he talks about how um, first a caveat: we're not talking about specific small goals, right? Like I want to uh, increase my retention by five percent. Uh, we're not saying do away with those kind of goals. We're talking about the sort of BHAGs, the big, hairy, audacious goals. 
um, organizational goals, societal goals, like stop climate change or cure, can- cure cancer, what have you. Um, and he gives a good example of computers and vacuum tubes. Basically, like if you um, said to someone back in the day that was working on vacuum tubes, that this is going to be a predecessor to modern computing, that like they would have no idea what you're talking about. They weren't setting out to make a computation machine, but vacuum tubes were a key component in the evolution of computers. And we would not have computers if it weren't for vacuum tubes. Wait, um, sorry, so idea- vacuum. Sorry, what are, are those like Hoover's? The thing that no, you- it's like a it's like an electrical component. Oh gosh. It looks yeah. like a little glass, like kind of dome or cylinder uh, that is vacuumed out so that electricity can travel through it um, without impedance, I guess. Great. Let this be the yeah. example that there are no stupid questions on this podcast. No, no, not at all. I, I want to see Maria's version of that PC. That would be amazing. So yeah, Dyson, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, carry on, Matt. No, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit. But um, the idea is that these vacuum tubes, right, are a stepping stone towards the final outcome of, you know, computation. Um, And so going back to the original experiment around picking amorphous blobs, you're choosing stepping stones along the way towards whatever the final goal is. And so this program that he did with the choosing these blobs was called Pick Breeder. And at the same time, there was another project that some other researcher was doing called the Living Image Project, which was sort of the same experiment except rather than making individual choices, it was voted on by group consensus, which of these blobs is most interesting. And um, the, the results were wildly different. With Pick Breeder, you would get interesting stuff like a, a skull or a butterfly. And with the Living, Living Image Project, where you had this group consensus, you were still getting amorphous blobs that weren't really like making sense. And if you think about it, like if we're all choosing the blob that is most interesting to us. Well, it might be like, you know, Maria is interested in vacuum tubes. Anthony is interested in uh, geology. I'm interested in cats. And we're all picking different amorphous blobs based on our interests, but we don't have a unified sort of outcome. And and you can make that connection to uh, sort of big audacious goals. Like if we want to stop climate change, uh, you know, one of us might think it has to do with electric vehicles one of us might think it has to do with recycling. And so there's different ways to get there. And we as humans don't always know what the stepping stones are going to be to get to that final outcome. Um, and so the the sort of takeaway here is like these large objectives are, are a little bit flawed. It's not really about like the things that we want to accomplish. It's about the things we don't even know we want to accomplish, but we would want to if we knew that they were possible. Um, so one of the takeaways here is that um, uh, this guy, Ken Stanley, says there's, and I'm quoting here, there's no good strategy to achieve a specific thing that we don't know how to do. Um, but what he recommends is maximizing the chance of achieving something useful. Um, you don't necessarily know what the payoff is going to be. You need to maximize opportunity to have success, even though we don't necessarily know what that success will be. So he offers two pieces of advice here, and I promise I'm going to bring this back to games momentarily. Uh, The first is to collect these stepping stones and honor interestingness, as he puts it, what is interesting. And then the second is to recognize the stepping stones when they do snap into view for the first time. Um, So you kind of have to keep um, an eye on what these stepping stones are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I, I actually do agree with a lot of his ideas, but like, I almost 
I want to play devil's advocate a little bit to sort of just understand, like, do we actually agree with his, um, his theories there? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, vacuum tubes were required for computers as we ended up with them. But if vacuum tubes, tubes hadn't been invented, I think there's a good chance we would have found some other way of doing it. Um, so I, I, it's, and it strikes me a little bit because I, I did have a, a CEO who was into the hags and uh, would quote like Sony saying they wanted to change the perception of Japanese electronics, which were seen as cheap earlier. And now we kind of you tend to think of them as, as high quality. Um, and even in, um, you know, at Congregate, one of our core, I don't know if it's, you know, core goal versus mission, and there's some subtle differences there, but, you know, everything, we had this goal of trying to improve um, independent developers or help independent developers find and grow their communities. And so like every decision we made was informed by this unified vision. Um, whereas like the pick breeder, everyone was voting, but they didn't have a unified thing. They weren't all trying to find the skull or the car. Um, and he does address that a little bit in, in his talk. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think part of what's interesting about this is that it does feel a little paradoxical or counterintuitive that you know, we, we feel like these, this method works and we've kind of all adopted it. Um, so I was just curious, like what you or um, Maria or Anil thought, you know, if that does that resonate with you, or do you think there's, you know, maybe some flaw in this or some subtlety that uh, maybe is being missed? No. It's well, it's funny. I find this is like the philosopher cast rather than the meta cast this week with this question is <laughs> very deep thinking. Um, I'm sorry I can't answer your question directly, Anthony, because I feel like it's such a broad subject that you need to kind of go through the thought process. I, I, I like you were saying, I broadly agree that I find that without um, actually having too of a vague goal or too big a goal, it, it, that is, for example, why climate change doesn't get solved because it's hard to break that down into concrete actions that you could easily remedy. Whereas if it's like reduce the amount of nuclear power plants that you have in a country by X by this time, well, that's something that you can very easily achieve. I think it's something that I found myself, like um, maybe it's the same for you, Anthony, but for example, if you want to start your own business, that isn't something that normally happens overnight. You have to go quite a few steps to, to pull it off. And so then you start breaking it down into, okay, I need to do this. I need to find this co-founder. I need to raise this amount of finance. I need to come up with some crazy idea that people will believe me about, et cetera, et cetera. Then you can make it happen. Whereas if your goal was just like, I want to do something fantastic it, it won't happen so um i think it's quite a, a clever way of thinking and i i largely subscribe to i guess the the, the points that matt's put across in terms of what's going on here yeah. uh, coming back more to, to kind of yeah go on, go on. I, say, I think the difference though is that um so i mean you're right like any big goal if you're going to achieve it at least classically like you break it into smaller ones that are achievable uh, i think what what matt's saying is that the the argument is that you wouldn't know what those small goals are that yeah um so and that's where it's counterintuitive because it feels like you know we have this thing we want to do we should be able to figure out what are the steps along the way but i think the argument is that we we can't know um i guess in the case of like starting up a business we've seen other people do it and so there's sort of like a a known method of doing it. Um, whereas something like solving climate change, we don't have that method ahead of time. And so like, can we, can we make those small goals that really will get there? Um, or is it something where we just have to keep innovating and then eventually someone will see those stepping stones that Matt was talking about of, um, 
you know, oh, now we have this piece and this piece. Oh, this is going to fix global warming or something like that. Um, and that's that's where it gets a little a little interesting, I think. Where the lines yeah. are blurred, yeah. Well, I would yeah, say, I mean, so isn't it a little from column A and a little from column B? I mean, take like a very fantastical goal at one point, which was like people saw this massive object in the sky. They called it the moon. And one day someone wanted to land on it and um, make it real, not a, a film by Stanley Kubrick or whatever crazy theories people have around it. So you sort of do have the goal, but that's kind of crazy as well. And who knew what the kind of goals in between were to do it? And there are some missteps that were taken along the way. And then it, eventually they would get there. So... I'm I'm kind of rambling myself now, so I'll let yeah. you go. Well, you raise it. a good point, though, and you know, like he, he actually mentions this this idea of the space race um, in the podcast. Um, uh, one thing we haven't talked about is the importance of constraints and context in achieving these, you know, audacious goals and and the stepping stones along the way. If it weren't for the space race um, and the desire to reach the moon, um, would we necessarily have pursued the path? that we ultimately did and, and, you know, combined these existing stepping stones to get to where we needed to get to. Um, these, the context and the constraints are really important. Otherwise you're just acting randomly, which is specifically not what you're supposed to do according to this podcast. Like acting randomly is not, it's just as bad as setting these, these goals that the, the guests of the podcast claims are counterproductive. So context and constraints are important. And it's, it's also important to like, as he says, collect the stepping stones along the way and be aware of them when they snap into place so that you can sort of bring them all together. I, I feel that we might be trying to compare apples to bananas a little bit because um, I think this, this type of mindset applies extremely well, for example, in scientific research because you have grants and your research is going to be on a very, very specific small building block of this larger picture. And then when enough building blocks, <clears throat> excuse me, when enough building blocks have been researched, then you put it all together and you, together the scientific community comes to this outcome. And that's possible because, you know, there's governmental funding and we, we accept that the grand majority of research is going to be a failure. And then when we take a look at you know, a business, we have a limited runway in terms of the investment that we can make. And that's why we have to work towards goals because we can't, with a space race, you had governments funding it. So until someone reached this, the, the moon, you can just keep, there's no tap turning off um, unless the government decides to do so. And so if you're looking at a business, you have a limited runway and that's why you have to make clear you have to work in a goal set way so that you know when to pivot, when to stop, when to try something else. So I think from a business perspective, maybe this mindset can be applied by how can I increase the number of experiments within my constraint to be run to find the right answers? Potentially, like you, you raise an important point, which is that there is risk involved. Um, if you're making these uh, stepping stones that are interesting, but not necessarily proven or guaranteed, there is a trade-off and you could be spending money that doesn't ultimately lead to anything. Um, but I think you're right, Maria, that like increasing your optionality, increasing the number of tests that you're running uh, or the number of stepping stones that you're collecting 
is a good way to approach this. And it just has to do with your organizational comfort with risk and, and what sort of uh, runway you have to take on these interesting tasks. So I guess how the, would you do that? Also, I suppose one of the kind of classic corporate examples is Google's 20% time where they yeah. just give employees one day a week to work on whatever is most interesting to them. And um, I think, was it Gmail that came out of that? I think a few of the like big innovations at Google did come out of it. And that's a really good kind of example of the success of this um, or things like the MacArthur grant, uh, grants or you know, there, there is some of it out there, but um, so yeah, I guess Google's the best I can think of in terms of um, uh, examples, or I guess the other one maybe is like 3M. Uh, I don't think there's explicit about yeah. giving freedom, but they're really, really they they really emphasize communication between departments, and so things like the Post-it note, like Post-its, that that adhesive was supposed to be a really strong adhesive, and it ended up being kind of weak <laughs> and crappy. But um, some other department entirely was you know heard about it within 3M and turned it into like their most successful product ever. And so by encouraging this kind of collaboration, and I guess, Matt, that's more, that's like the awareness of the stepping stones side of things. Like they are encouraging everyone to know what pieces are there so that then we can figure out how to put them together again. So, but how do you do this in games? Like how, how could it's correlate? How can we pick up as many stepping stones as we yeah. can along the short runway that we have? So th that's a, a great question. It's what I wanted to sort of bring to the table here. I, I have some thoughts. So just to, to bring us back to the two pieces of advice that, the, that Ken Stanley offered. One is collect stepping stones and honor interestingness. And two is recognize those stepping stones when they snap into view. So, um, you know, the first thing that came to mind for me is doing a lot of prototyping and concepting uh, and doing that quickly. Um, and I, I think importantly there is like not throwing away stuff that you think is interesting just because it didn't return a certain KPI. Um, because, you know, we may find that some prototype that we did, uh, you know, months ago is not successful from a commercial standpoint at D0. But, you know, when we come up with this other prototype down the line and smash them together, then all of a sudden we have something really, really interesting. Um, so that's, that's one idea is, is prototyping and concepting frequently. Uh, another way to do that is emphasizing UGC and creators. So giving players, uh, giving developers the tools to do their own in, uh, innovations based on, you know, your sort of core product, your base, base set of tools. Um, that I think is, is going to increase your velocity much faster than just doing internal prototyping. You're sort of opening things up exponentially to anyone to do whatever is interesting to them. And this concept of interestingness um, is really core to the, the sort of thesis. And then the final one, which uh, I think Anthony and, and Anil will really find interesting is composability and interoperability. So at the risk of taking this into crypto corner territory, like this is something that blockchain really enables is, you know, you can just take someone's code, smart contracts that they've already put together, fork it and do your own thing on top of it. Uh, you can, you know, bring uh, tokens together and interoperate, like having access to all of the innovations that came before your work is an important aspect of this as well, because you, you like, it doesn't sound like collaboration, but it is implicit collaboration, right? Everyone has done all this work before and you are collaborating with their prior work and putting your own innovations on top of it. So these were the three things that I came up with, but I, I'd love to hear everyone else's thoughts. Yeah, the, the prototyping and concepting new ideas quickly. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. 
sometimes by going through the, the motions, you'll you'll find something that works because you keep it keep it reading on it. And I also agree that if something doesn't look like it's working from a KPI perspective immediately, sometimes it's not worth just abandoning it quickly, like observe, learn, and then think I'd phrase the metaphor as try to keep collecting stepping stones from within the same lake and same river <laughs> instead of jumping through rivers um, so that you can build up that that specific picture better. Yeah, I think um, I think on the the UGC side, um, <clears throat> one of the or some of the best examples are on uh, the modding community and the fact that um, I was in some of my research, I was looking it up, and some of the, like the biggest games of all time really are mods, um, like uh, Dota Two and the whole MOBA League of Legends genre came out of a um, a mod called Defense of the Ancients on Warcraft Three. Counter-Strike was a mod of Half-Life. Team Fortress 2 came from a mod of Quake. Uh, Daisy and PUBG both came out of Arma 2. Um, so, you know, and the it, it's, it's nice to think of innovation as just sort of like a fun academic thing, but these are incredible, like, billion-dollar games that came out of it from, so from, like, a, a money side, yeah, it works. Uh, and no one could have predicted that, um, I don't know, Warcraft 3 would have generated a... 5v5 real-time battle game like i mean that's nonsense um but it's it's exactly what happened um because they had the foresight to you know create or to support modding communities and to allow players to mess around with it and and see what they could get yeah but what happens in that situation to the business revenue because for example if we look at genshin impact they spent years developing these games that kept pushing the boundaries of tech and now they've built such a strong position in the market that's very difficult to replicate because they've achieved a new point in for example mobile technology uh, everyone i know that plays the game the first comment that they have about it is how impressive and how can it be free to play because it's such a, a premium a premium fun game so if we're talking about ugc and and modding um i know we'll get into this in in your topic potentially, Anthony. So maybe I should have asked this later or you can answer going into your topic. But if we have things like composability and interoperability where someone can take your game and then go and build their own game, how does that help your business revenue in allowing that? Uh, that is a really good question. Um, I think in, I mean, in some cases, so um, like Valve picked up Counter-Strike um, and it was a mod of Half-Life. So uh, you know, they were able to kind of capture that and um, grow it. But certainly, like, you know, I don't think um, like Team Fortress 2 and and id Software are not related at all. And so a lot of times that, I guess, it's, so, well, so some of it is from the view that, you know, how high of a, a level view are we taking? Like, we these innovations happened into the gaming community. But you're right that in many cases, the original product that led to it doesn't directly benefit from it. So yeah, that's an interesting question. Valve is a great case study there, I think, right? Um, you know, I wrote about this sometime last year in the context of GTA V and NoPixel, um, <clears throat> but was researching Valve and all this history. And you know, they opened up their source code, they built the tools, they supported the modders, and then when they saw some outsized success and popularity, they acquired them and brought them into their into the fold. So um, that that's 
I think, a good case study on how to do it. Granted, that was many years ago at this point. Um, you could look at the opposite side of the coin and say Blizzard really dropped the ball with um, Warcraft and Dota coming out of that. Um, so I think it it's a difficult business problem to solve, but um, I don't know. Like I think I think it's uh, it has to do with like opening up the tools, supporting the communities, and then finding ways to partner. Uh, maybe there is something around because you know, I thought about this in the context of our next topic as well. Um, not to transition us too early, but like if you are sort of the originator of the game or the the tools, the source code, um, there is a certain um, I guess brand value that you can uh, provide by saying this is something we support. This is our, uh, this is the official fork or whatever that we've decided to layer into our core product. So I think there's something there around providing that. Um, endorsement as the as the originator, uh, so that, that might be one way I would think about it. But it's a tough problem to solve. Yeah, I suppose like in the short term, like anyone who wanted to play Team Fortress had to buy Quake. Um, so it it yes, it spun off into this huge thing, but it did in the, the short term provide additional value that it was able to capture because their the thing they produced suddenly was even better, and so people wanted to by the original thing. So um, yeah, I guess in the short term, it, it did benefit them, even if they weren't able to um, to capture the longer term success. So, yeah, so maybe we can uh, go into your topic, Anthony, about fully on-chain games. So when Lars was on, he gave a quick overview about the game and the ZK tech. So what, what about fully on-chain games do you want to bring to us today? Yeah, um, so uh, yeah, the game here being Dark Forest, uh, which is... Uh, I think it really is a nice um, jump off point from what we were just talking about because it it was an undergrad MIT project that um, you know the, the founder just thought was really interesting and uh, started playing around with it and um, originally wasn't even sure how to use the CK tech but uh, which are the zero knowledge proofs that it uses for their kind of fog of war um, uh, mechanic but just started playing around with it and ended up creating this game that. Um, you know, just sort of evolved from doing interesting things first. Uh, and so the game does in, uh, exist entirely on chain. So all of the logic, everything is provable. Every move in the game is computed, is, is put to the blockchain and the results are computed. Um, their, their tech is what allows you to do that without revealing all of that information to the other players. But all of it is on chain. You're not, it's not something like Axie Infinity where they have their own servers that are handling all the battles and everything, and then they just write the results to the blockchain or they, um, or games that just you know, use the, um, uh, the blockchain tokens for you know, interacting within the game, but everything else is on their own server. And uh, so it's, it's a very different situation. Um, and it does have some benefits to it, but I was talking about it with, um, a uh, so a founder and CEO of a, a gaming guild um, that was you know, investing heavily in blockchain, and uh, his initial reaction was, you know, I, I don't want games on chain. I don't see the point, and it surprised me because you know I've been talking with a lot of academic people who say, oh, this is so cool. It's all the new tech and everything, um, but from a practical perspective, he saw it as just like slowing everything down because everything is a lot slower when it has to be calculated on chain. It's harder to update. Um, you know, there's a lot of limitations to it. And it kind of made me think like, you know, is, is this actually a direction that we think, you know, the, the industry should go and, and will go? Um, or is it more just an intellectual 
you know, curiosity and, and something that's interesting and, um, you know, may lead to something that we can't even predict right now. But, you know, in the short term, I, I was under the just sort of assumption that on-chain is the ideal, um, but this suggested that it, it isn't or it might not be perceived as such for by a lot of people who are very into the, um, the, the industry. So I guess I can, I can talk a little bit more about what the benefits I see are, but I was just curious to first get, you know, reactions of, you know, what do you all think? Is that, um, you know, is, is on-chain an ideal? Is it something that's, uh, that you think people are going to want um, or that we're going to head? I see, I see Anil smiling. So I'm curious what Anil's thinking right now. Yeah, I guess as like the thought experiment is something that our team's thought about many times is could you design a game that could only be done on blockchain? And I think we started doing that around six months ago. And we did come up with quite a few ideas. I think at last count, we had something up as many as seven. Then we said, are any of these games good game ideas? And none of them are good game ideas. That's our opinion. And so I think to answer your question, do I think the industry should head in this direction? No. And do I think people want to head in this direction? Also, no. Um, that might be sort of jaded old man syndrome. But I think it's because I feel that like when I see big innovations in gaming and gameplay, the gameplay tends to be more of kind of experiential nature rather than the tech behind it. I'm sure someone will think of some ways that I'm wrong in saying that. Perhaps things like 4X games and like the way that you could do things like territory capture and things like that. But whilst you could put a lot of this kind of stuff onto the blockchain to make it unique, is that aspect really so sort of fun that you could do it? I mean, of course I could be proven wrong. At the end of the day, you will only know when you see this sort of final result. But I think that like when you see sort of like big, um, in, I wouldn't say necessarily innovations, but maybe surprise hits would be the big way of doing it. I think it's interesting because it was mentioned in the previous topic. At the moment, I would say the biggest hits we've seen have actually come from sort of mashups or slight evolutions of existing games. So yes, for example, Dota is the great example, uh, you know, came from Warcraft 3. Auto Chess was one that wasn't mentioned there, but that came from Dota. So that's a mod of a mod produced another game. PUBG came from DayZ, as you said. Um, perhaps maybe more out there is perhaps like, you know, you yourself worked on the venture capitalist, you said that came from like Cookie Clicker and Clicker Games, which that was kind of a bit far-fetched and came from something that you wouldn't exist. But it didn't really come from tech. It came from just sort of like clicking on stuff and feeling bored and sort of time wasted sort of things or fidget spinners and things like that. So yeah, I mean, I, I personally don't think so. I think that like really good kind of gameplay tends to, to come from something else that consumers want, um, from something that feels really good. And blockchain doesn't really lend itself to it. Like, um, I find the whole sort of Web3 space really fascinating because you have some of the smartest people I know in the space. And yet I kind of feel like no one really knows anything about Web3 even now, which <laughs> I find actually one of the most fascinating and interesting reasons to be part of that space because it's that this giant conundrum that no one's figured out and could lead to all kinds of possibilities and that makes me excited because i feel that that means the chance of there being something that no one sees have coming being a huge success is way more likely with web3 than it would be an existing technology and i do sometimes feel a bit sad in the current games market how everything is just a sequel or just another franchise of something we've seen before and like people don't really take risks anymore um, and I'm a bit hypocritical to say that because I'm working on a mobile battle royale game. So I, I appreciate, you know, that I'm one to sort of say that, but it's for a reason because you want to de-risk the product versus going risky versus doing like the prototypes. And as like the production values go up through the roof, it's harder to prototype stuff quickly, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, 
I've given you a long and deviating answer there, but I think, yeah, in my opinion, we've thought through the experiment. We come up with kind of good ideas. Maybe we're just not very good designers. Um, they could definitely be something, but I think it's more likely that the tech will be applied to something existing and that will be the winning formula. E.g. Roblox and Web3, I could see something like that being huge because you've got kind of like a metaverse where other content creators can create stuff. They can get rewarded. You can give it brand value. The existing developer with the... If Roblox is Web3, it'd be like a Roblox coin and that would be accruing in value based on other people kind of portraying it. You could definitely set some kind of ecosystem up like that. And I feel that is more likely to succeed than some kind of like really unique could only be done on chain game. But I will say one thing, that game made Lars actually take blockchain gaming seriously. And for that alone, <laughs> that is an achievement I think cannot be underestimated. Yeah. The dominoes are falling now hearing <laughs> exactly. you say, Anil. So... May, okay, this is my theory. Theorize it. Creating games, you know, free-to-play mobile, console, the stepping stones already exist. Whenever we're thinking about ideas for games, it's a remix. You're like, oh, I like this and this game and this works. And then you just put it all together and you're you're building a new game off of blocks that are already they've already been explored. They've been um and yeah, we're, we're always building on top of each other across the industry on what we're doing. And so we're not doing this discovery alone. We're build, we've built it up over time. And I think that's why, for example, mobile free-to-play is just such a mature market now. And um, maybe that's why there's this conundrum in blockchain gaming, because you, you don't have that history on how can you design games that can have all of these new behaviors based on what this new technology allows. And so, yeah, you're not starting from a tower that's already been built by years of exploration and commercial releases. You're starting from the ground up. And so you need to do a lot more work and a lot more free creative exploration to reach there. Yeah, it, it, could happen or, it could happen organically for sure. But there is a sort of element of reinventing the wheel, which is that, sure, you could make some other system where you could carry goods from point A to point B. But then you find out that just using like a handcart is a much easier way than your jet propulsion system that costs millions of dollars and does some funky tech doing it. But I certainly won't say that it's impossible. It's 100% possible that maybe some people like this start having some muck around projects, it starts getting some traction. Then after a few years, it's kind of like a breakout indie hit. And then insert big video games developer here comes in, sees the idea, puts the license on it, massively exploits it, and boom, the biggest game in the world is a blockchain-only game that could only be done on blockchain. I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. It's possible. But I just guess uh, maybe Anthony's maybe to it more your side, but being someone who sort of lives in this space day after day and has to think about the technical challenges, the tech is really cool. There's some interesting things you can do with it, but I don't see anything from a fundamental point of view that especially in the kind of moment to moment gameplay that I feel gives you something that you can't already do. That's my opinion on it. But I want to stress it's just an opinion and opinions are like assholes everyone's got one right there you go so <laughs> wow i've never heard that <laughs> um i i think there's a distinction to be made between like the business viability of starting a studio that does fully on-chain games and like the creative and technical exploration i think it's fascinating from a creative and technical standpoint um but if i was starting out uh you know a venture-backed uh game studio looking to scale quickly i don't know that i would 
start making fully on-chain games because as you said, Anil, like anyone, some big publisher or any developer could come in and fork the code and do their own thing and put a license on it and just like take my ideas. Um, so that's like from a business standpoint, that's not, you know, that's not, not a great idea, I think. But however, um, from a creative and technical standpoint, it's fascinating because of what we talked about earlier, the composability, anyone can just kind of build on top of it, build new experiences on top of it. And one thing I think is really interesting is like, because it runs on a blockchain, that game will exist as long as that blockchain exists. And so there is no like development time horizon. It could just keep going forever. You know, we have, we have games like chess and go that have been around for hundreds or thousands of years. I don't think it's crazy to think that we could have a game that is built on smart contracts, fully on chain that lasts for a long, long time with hobbyists, uh, modders, developers, slowly building up this uh, sort of network of interfaces or, you know, spinoffs or different UIs or whatever. Like, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that can happen. And, you know, Anthony, you touched on that a bit in your Dark Forest deconstruction with some of the different projects that have already been built on Dark Forest. So to me, that part of it is really fascinating. And we just don't know where um, creative people could take these things. Yeah, I think um, from a uh, from a player and sort of investor perspective, that idea of the game just continuing to exist uh, can be a little reassuring. Like if, if Sky Mavis, you know, if, if enough money had been stolen and they didn't get bailed out and the whole thing crashed, well, your axes are basically worthless. The game no longer exists and now, maybe someone else picks it up and lets you keep your axes in some new world, but you're reliant on the the owner staying solvent and supporting it. And, um, whereas, you know, with something like Dark Forest, it doesn't matter if the, the people who made it just drop off entirely. Um, and they can even burn all their keys so that the game can't be changed anymore. Uh, but it still exists. And so if you were to invest in it, you at least have the confidence that it's not going away. Um, you know, the, the value of it's not going to go down because of anything that the creators have done. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much, like right now in the whole, in like the first wave of uh, everyone being really FOMO driven, like that sort of security. And, you know, it didn't really matter as much. People just wanted to get in quickly. And we've seen the crash that came out of that. And now we're seeing wave two coming in, like the Blast Royale and, and some of the other games that are, you know, trying to be fun and provide value uh, as a game and instead of just as a financial instrument that has a little you know, mini game on top of it. Uh, so I, I think we'll you know, start seeing that coming out of it. But, um, you know, we all, may also see people who, if they want to put that much money into something, are going to want a little more confidence that it's going to stick around. Um, and then, yeah, the other side is the composability, which, you know, has some similarities to open source, open source software, which some for-profit companies do get involved in and, and have a lot of success with. And it it is scary as, you know, someone like you, uh, someone's going to steal my ideas, they're going to take, you know, what I've been working on. Um, but a lot of times the value of a company is not its code as much as its relationship with the customers, the, you know, customer service that it provides, the brand, um, and they can still benefit from that expansion of the the open source, um, you know, whatever they've decided to put out there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and we could go farther down the rabbit hole of, you know, there are ways that you can even extend the game so that people who don't opt into it still have to participate. And, but um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think your points are, are good. And 
um, talking with one of the creators of Dark Forest, he said, you know, yeah, it's, you know, Ethereum is a, it's a computer, but it's an Apple IIe. Like it's got no processing power at all <laughs> right now, uh, which is why they keep crashing their, their chains as they're trying to do stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, I just was curious to hear you all, you know, what you all thought. And um, I, I think you make some very good points that, you know, if nothing else, maybe this is like VR in the nineties. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's a curiosity, but it's nothing that is going to find mainstream for, for a while. I don't, I think that's this type of fringe innovation that it's not focused on business viability. It's more exploring the feasibility of ideas. And I think that needs to happen just across everything in the world and humanity, because if we, if we're exploring everything for the sole purpose of business viability, we won't essentially take some of these big risks that have changed where we're going. And, you know, we're talking at a huge scale, but this, I think this applies to the majority of the industries. Um, so everyone has a role to play. And I, sorry, I don't remember said it, maybe Matt about the aqua hire. Um, we've seen this in, for example, a lot of FinTech. Yeah, yeah it all uh, plays in a cycle. I, I will say one thing though, that Matt's point about it all being open source, smart contract in, interoperable gives it a much better chance than many other things. So just mentioned their VR and AR, but that's kind of closed shop. You have to be experienced with the tech. But if there's something out there that you kind of liked and you can just have a look at it and go, oh, that's how it works. Well, I can make my own version by just forking it. Yes, from the commercial terms, you're not protected, but from the sure, from the pure innovation and Indian, is it cool part, it's actually very attractive. So mm -hmm. I would argue actually, counter what I said that, like if there was something that could be made from it, it could be fun it is more likely to come from there. I, I personally think though, it's more likely gonna result in kind of tech to begin with. Maybe that tech then leads into games. But I think we're at that kind of stage. Like it's just like a entirely new rule book in, in terms of ways you can think about it. You have to like really change your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's the adjustment period. Or in my case, just employ young people who will just grow up knowing that way so they don't yeah. get jaded by the ways that things used to get done is, is my cheat code to try and achieve the same thing. Um, yeah, Neil, do you want to jump into to your topic? Yeah, sure. So kind of changing topic slightly, I'm going to talk about games and uh, developers. Uh, hopefully that's okay. Um, so yeah, I want to talk about um, console developers and a mobile product because this week I was kind of encouraged by the news to see that um, Nintendo have made over 1 billion in revenue from Fire Emblem Heroes on mobile, which is kind of curious because, you know, they've made Mario for mobile, they've made Mario Kart for mobile, they've made Zelda, I believe, for mobile and Animal Crossing, and yet Fire Emblem was the game that did the best. Why is that? <clears throat> gotcha would probably be my answer to that one. <laughs> that one. But it, all aside, they've achieved that, by the way, with zero performance marketing spend. Not once have they run a Facebook advert, a TikTok advert, getting an influencer to market it. It's all come from natural homegrown UA and kind of shown that sort of the, the brand value. And it's made me wonder why has no one of the kind of traditional big console manufacturers taken mobile seriously? Like Super Monkey Ball came out on the original iPhone in 2008. Wow, that makes me feel old. And at the time, it was one of the most successful apps on the iPhone. I believe it did $3.5 million revenue in one day. And at the time, that was considered, you know, incredible. Um, those sort of numbers would never be done again. And, you know, now you get games that do twice that amount per day, every day for an entire year. Um, so I just wanted to get, you know, thoughts for it. We've seen many other kind of manufacturers try it. Sony in particular have seen, have released games. I remember there being like a, 
Little Big Planet kind of Sackboy type game that they've tried making, a few other titles. I believe recently they have made some hires to sort of try and get the mobile division again. Um, but why is it that these manufacturers don't take it seriously? Whereas other sort of big corps, let's say something like Netflix, they're not too proud to allow Netflix to be on the iOS and, and Google Play ecosystems. It turns out they like capitalism as much as other people in America and, and then realize it's a way to make money. And it's something that I just find very unusual when you've got such a massive portfolio of games and it doesn't necessarily have to be cannibalistic. So throw the thoughts out there. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it, yeah, it's a great question. Um, some of it might be uh, a lack of understanding. So EA, I think, has a few hundred games on mobile. Um, I don't know if any of them, maybe a couple of them have done well, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, they're, it's a, it's an entirely different business model than console developers are used to. And, uh, when I was at congregate, I worked with, um, a couple of different developers who had console background and it, it was a very similar story every time where like they would make this really awesome game that was a lot of fun and had no idea how to make money with it. Uh, and so, you know, the, if they want to take it seriously, and, and maybe this, I assume this is what Nintendo did, or they wouldn't have had as much success. Like they, they have to bring on different kinds of developers. They need to bring on people who know free to play. Um, and uh, I think like you know, most of those EA games are just sort of ports or, you know, and, and that model just isn't going to be successful. And if they keep trying that, they're not going to find a lot of success. Um, so it's, it does involve I think really admitting to themselves that they don't know how to make money with this and to get people who do um, as at least a first step. Well, get people who do and allow them to just try something completely new that potentially the company hasn't experimented with. I think sometimes panic buttons can start, start ringing. So, um, you know, I, I haven't played all of these games. I investigated a little bit, the monetization of, of Fire Emblem and, I believe that the mobile market, there are things that can work and things that will struggle to work based on who's in that market segment, who's your audience, what's your spend depth, is that what does that, what are the behaviors in terms of spending from the audience that you're targeting? For example, things like Mario Kart, arcade skill-based racing games usually struggle um, to, to monetize. And, you know, looking at Fire Emblem, it's a turn-based strategy game usually strategy games have really good spend depth and a, a specific audience that is willing to to spend deeply for for achieving oh overcoming the problems that they're trying to solve with their strategy um fire emblem yeah gasha but you give players a reason to want to keep pulling the gasha and then they had all of these add-ons of things that you can buy different castle skins or something that give you bonuses. So the monetization just feels like it's very well designed. It has an IP that will call people's immediate attention. Um, with, that, with that style of IP, I think there's already a nostalgia in that audience that likes turn-based uh, strategy games. We've seen some like Val Valkyrie Chronicles, if that's how you, yeah. Um, so maybe, this is going back to maybe traditional console developers because you need to have this sort of market knowledge on what are the best games to bet on for mobile, perhaps by just trying to bet on everything and doing the ports as well without 
optimizing the monetization that works well with the mobile the mo- mobile audience it leads to failures and then you have failures and then you just think oh, okay maybe we shouldn't do it anymore <laughs> i think you all raised some really important points uh you know one is that um y- yeah you have to have to hire the right people that know how to make uh, mobile free-to-play games um, and these games need to be designed from the ground up with that monetization in mind. It's not as simple as just taking a su- successful HD IP and just porting it to mobile. Um, so like there are certain like mechanics and systems that need to be built in. You need to build in that spend depth. You know, you talked about Gotcha. Uh, Fire Emblem is a character collector. Gotcha. And, and by the way, to the earlier point around EA, probably one of their two or three most successful games is Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, which is also mm-hmm. a Gotcha-driven character collector with a big IP. Um, so there's that. And then uh, one other point about um, Fire Emblem, maybe relevant, maybe not, but um, I did a quick quick look up here while you all were talking. Their, their most successful market is Japan, and Japan traditionally has the highest ARPU on mobile. Um, so just like a higher propensity to spend per player. Um, number two was US for what it's worth, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's certain capabilities and certain understanding of the market and the mechanics that need to go into making these games. Um, and you know, to the earlier point, uh, we talked about trade-off and risk-reward. Like the big publishers are going to be slower to try new things. Mobile no longer new, but uh, you know, it was at one point, and uh, they want to see other smaller developers figure it out first. And then they'll slowly dip their toe in the water and figure out how they can do it themselves. So, so my counterpoint to some of these points that have been made is so Mario Kart Tour, which is a, a failure, has made 280 million US dollars since its launch in, in 2019. Pretty good failure to me. Fire Emblem Heroes came out in 2017. What if you made a Fire Emblem Heroes 2? Imagine if that was possible to take all your learnings from a previous game and make a better version based on your learnings. But these developers don't do it. By contrast, Zing and Natural Motion, they made CSR Racing. Then they made a CSR Racing 2. Who bets there's a CSR Racing 3 in development? I would have a strong feeling that there is, given that most of the people who are still worked on that game are at that company. So I just don't get that kind of mindset. Perhaps it's only like a Nintendo-only thing. But... It, it just puzzles me that it, these things do so well and yet there still seems to be this massive reluctance. Or, you know, you could, as you say, if you have to figure it out and it requires all these skills, or why not just buy, insert successful developer here and get them, give them your IP and get them to make a game. You know, Nintendo could have bought Supercell many times over if they wanted to back in the day. And, you know, spiritually, they're quite similar. Um, I, I, I just find it very curious because I think from a pure business standpoint, I, I don't understand I, EA, ironically, to give them credit, they keep trying. It's just that they haven't yet had, like, since... Well, they had Simpsons tapped out, to be fair. So they have had a top-grossing game on mobile. It's just been a long time. that They never really got, you know, like, FIFA to work. That's something that I find surprising. How many people in the world love football stroke soccer and how massively monetizing it is on console, where they've never been able to work that on mobile. If I was them, I would keep trying it, personally, because I feel the market's there. Um but the other, Sony's another one with their IP. I mean, you know, why don't they make their version of Fire Emblem Heroes but put it with their own IPs? They have strong ones. I just find it puzzling because I, I surely think that people at those companies must be suggesting such a thing when the evidence is there. But like they've already made money on a lot of these titles. 
just to, to offer a counterpoint, I think FIFA has been fairly successful on mobile, not to mm-hmm. shield my employer too much, but uh, <laughs> I think they have, have done quite well with FIFA. Um, and to your point about like acquisitions and bringing in successful mobile developers, um, I don't think it's as simple as just plug and play and acquire uh, acquired company. Like there's this whole integration of the culture, processes and development is different. You have different sort of centralized services for mobile games than you might for like uh, console games. You need mm-hmm. UA, you need app store optimization, publishing, uh, all these different like centralized services, data science. Um, and uh, typically when you acquire a company, right? Like founders don't always stick around, you know, there's like earnouts, like there's, there's some intricacies there, I guess is my point. It's not as simple as just let's buy a successful mobile developer and have them make our, you know, big IP and, and bring it to mobile. I don't, I don't think it's that straightforward. I agree. And I think we had a brief discussion about this when we discussed Take-Two's acquisition of, of Zynga, where we we're talking about, oh, great, they have a, an excellent mobile developer and they can take, I don't know, Grand Theft Auto and develop a mobile game. But then the IP relationship can be quite constrained. You can't just develop from the ground ground up a, a mobile game that has optimized monetization and and product market fit, you have to take the the constraints that the IP is giving you. So yeah, maybe that relationship isn't as simple. I think we'll hopefully see some better examples. I know Sony is expanding their their mobile market by collaborating with people that are great in the space. But no, maybe I'm just hopeful. What do you think, Anil? You look skeptical. No, I think surely it's a matter of um, when, not if. I mean, why would they not do it? They must be looking at success. They must realize that people play games on their mobile phone. They're literally the only ones, I would say. Like I personally think of all the rankings of developers, they have the worst ranking because pretty much everyone else has something successful. Like Konami has something successful. Capcom have had something successful. Square Enix have had things that are successful. Literally the only EA have had plenty of successes. Sony's the only one that I think is just a complete and utter damp squid. And it's like if you own IP like Uncharted, like Little Big Planet, like God of War, like how can you not get any one of those games to be like top 100 for like at least six months? Like I, I don't get it. That that I think is like really puzzling. Like, you know, that's like a massive L in, in my opinion. So I think surely someone has realized that's the case and hopefully they're trying to get it work we will see um to be fair you could maybe label that the same as rockstar as well um take two but i mean that's why they bought zynga i feel so they would have that kind of expertise but take two did they try to buy social point they bought the top you know nordius with top 11 um they've had a few things but they've never really had you know when you look grand theft auto 5 that i don't know if you've seen how many copies that game has sold but it's more copies have been sold than there are people that live in England, Maria, just to put that into, (laughs) not in England, Great Britain, right? That is how ridiculous that game has been done. So how can you not get even a small percentage of that through mobile? I I don't know, but um, I'm just rambling. I just sound like a bitter old man. I don't even know why. I I just find it puzzling, I guess. I I do want to say... um... Just to Matt, like I wasn't trying to take a shot at EA or anything there. That was, and I'm glad they've got people who <laughs> no know what they're there. doing working on it now. Um, I think I was thinking back to like the you know, 2015 or so, where it was mostly just premium games, and they were just kind of throwing them out there. But uh, obviously, they they have gotten totally it now. <laughs> I don't know what the takeaway is here. Well, what do you think, Anil? 
Well, what's well, the advantage? What do these big companies? I mean, so the advantage of, of IP is UA, right? Like that's like you said, they they haven't spent any money to make that billion dollars with with Fire Emblem, um, or at least any money on that. I mean, they've uh, built up the brand and they've done marketing for previous games and all that. Um, do you think that the publishers and the console de- developers have any advantages beyond that, or is it just that they can get their UA really cheap? Well, it increases brand awareness too for a kind of whole ecosystem, like a recurring theme that we've spoken in many a Metacast. This is sort of like evergreen IP or, you know, League of Legends is now a Netflix TV show, et cetera, et cetera. So it definitely fills into that kind of line of thinking. Um, I also think that we see more and more like Sony are doing things like now you can get some of their games on Steam that they've announced, which was like quite a directional change. I feel like Nintendo is always the one that because they've been around for like 100 plus years, they're like, no way we want to have that kind of mafiosi tactic of you will not have our games on any other system other than Nintendo. And if you do, it'll be vastly inferior and you'll know that you're playing the scumbag version of said game and that the real authentic experience can only be found on the Nintendo console. That's my opinion as to why they do it, because... I think even if they just released a Pokemon port with no even free-to-play mechanics, it would get number one easily for a couple of weeks, just given how big that kind of game is. So they perhaps don't kind of... I think they have an irrational fear where they feel that if they went that direction, it would devalue their hardware and then eventually people wouldn't buy their hardware and then they'd no longer be the, the loudest voice in the room and other people would take it away from them. And I believe that because I've had some quite close interactions with some old school people from Nintendo and I know mm-hmm. that they have that... Like they fought really hard to get this kind of position where like they took a cut of everyone's game and they don't want to give that up easily. It's kind of similar to how Apple right now is like, what's the real reason why they don't want other people to have app stores on their own platform? It's because they don't get a cut of the percentage. It's like you've done all that hard work. You don't want someone else coming into your walled garden and spoiling it. Um, Sony perhaps have changed their mind on that and realized that like there's a way more, you know, it's just an old school way of thinking as the world is in general going with this whole decentralized theme being, you know, the big kind of hot topic of technology. Why does that not apply across everything? So takeaways, I think that the older traditional developers are not going to change their mind. I think some of the more modern ones are going to change their approaches and we will see what what happens with it. but gaming can change vastly in, in, you know, just a decade or so. Look at the demise of Sega. So I do kind of wonder if, if people don't change the tune, will it be something that they regret later on? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, that's a really interesting takeaway. That could be an extension of the exclusivity of the, of the hardware. Okay, well, we reached the hour mark, so we'll, we'll end the episode here. Lots of big brain expanding conversations that happened um check out you should call this the philosophy special and put like plato or something thinking like it as the as a youtube thumbnail i feel i i think if you take a picture of you doing that we can use that as a thumbnail (laughs) (laughs) maybe in front of like a blast royale um background yeah if you need to go and break off all of this deep thinking go and watch that trail of rebel riders you look at some stuffed toys on wheels battling it out <laughs> gonna keep going back to this thank you so much for joining uh lovely to have you on for your first time anthony matt and neil awesome as always cool thank, thank you. you check out the dark forest deconstruction it's really good yeah great yeah and if you want to join the conversation ask any questions discuss more the dark forest deconstruction you can join us on the navix discord we're always around 
Um, and we'll see you next week. 